Well, good evening. I, too, want to thank you for being here on Monday evening, and in spite of the uh, snowy weather today, and no, I didn't bring it with me, because when I left Indiana, there was no snow, so I, there was none to bring with me, and I've been falsely accused by more than one person in this room, and I won't say who that is, but it's a delight to be here tonight. I'm so thankful you're here and an honor to be part of this missions conference. And I appreciate Brother Colton's presentation, and uh, I just wanted to affirm one thing that he said. Uh, I thought the presentation was good, but he said his wife is his better half, and he's right. <laughs> Promise. <clears throat> I've had the privilege to preach at his, uh, is that your sending church now, still? Yeah, his sending church in New Hampshire. And I've been there, I, I think, maybe four times, preached their mission conference. And so uh, we've, uh, we've met Colton, and we know him a little bit. 2 Corinthians 5 in your Bible, please. 2 Corinthians 5. And uh, we're going to read tonight just the second half of the chapter, starting in verse 11. Uh, last night we read all of it, and I'm going I'm to review just the main points from last night, not spend much time on that. Um, but then we'll get into the second part of our study for this evening on ambassadors. Let's pray before we read this text. <clears throat> Lord Jesus, thank you for the privilege to open the Word of God, what a joy it is to know we have the accurate Word of our Lord in front of us. And every time we open it, there's richness for our hearts. And I pray for your Holy Spirit to fill us tonight, both preacher and listener. I pray that your Word will minister to our souls, uh, convicting, challenging, reproving, rebuking, encouraging, comforting, whatever is necessary for us tonight. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. In verse 11 of 2 Corinthians 5, and we'll read through to the end of the chapter. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are made manifest unto God, and I trust also are made manifest in your consciences. For we commend not ourselves again unto you, but give you occasion to glory on our behalf, that ye may have somewhat to answer them which glory in appearance and not in heart. For whether we be beside ourselves, it is to God, or whether we be sober, it is for your cause. For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. And that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Wherefore henceforth know we no man after the flesh. Yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet now henceforth know we him no more. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. To wit that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then... We are ambassadors for Christ. As though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. If you recall from last night, we spoke on the ambassador's motivations. The motivation of the ambassador is, the, the first of all, the terror of the Lord. That's referred to in verse 11. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. 
realizing that we're going to stand before God someday and give account for our part in His mission. That's a scary thing. It's a scary prospect. Not because we're scared of Jesus, but because it is going to be a day of reckoning. I read an article this morning that, that used that word reckoning. And the word reckoning in the Bible doesn't... Uh, doesn't I, I'm not sure if you know exactly what it means. I learned something this morning, the article I read. The word reckoning means a very deep, thorough investigation. Getting down to the bottom and the facts of the story. We're going to stand before God and He's not going to just lightly gloss over how we lived our lives. He's going to do a very thorough investigation of our motives, our heart, our priorities, our time. We're going to give account for how we spent our life and what part in the mission of God we had. The second motivation of the ambassador is the love of Christ. And that's found in verse 14, for the love of Christ constraineth us. The overwhelming, overwhelming love of Jesus Christ We'll talk a little bit about that more tonight as we look at what Christ has done. And the third motivation for the ambassador is the conviction of truth. In the middle of verse 14, it says, We thus judge, or we have determined, we have come to a settled, convicting conclusion that Jesus died for all. Every man's a sinner. Jesus died for every man. And the only way they can be forgiven of their sins is through the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. Tonight, you have your study sheet there. Does anybody still need one? I, I saw the men helping pass those out. I appreciate that very much. Um, but if you, if you will follow with me tonight, let's talk secondly here about the ambassador's perceptions. The ambassador's perceptions. In verses 16 and 17, we see that two things changed for Paul. And he's giving us an analogy here of how he saw Christ and he's relating that to how he views people. So first of all, let's talk about Paul's perception of Jesus. His perception of Jesus. Look at verse 16 with me. Wherefore, henceforth know we no man after the flesh. What does that mean, I don't know anyone after the flesh? Well, listen to the rest of the verse. Yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet now henceforth know we him no more. And for clarification, you might could add the words at the end of the verse, now we know him no more after the flesh. Here's what Paul is telling us. He's comparing how he saw Jesus then and now. Then, being before he was converted on the Damascus Road, and now, being after he is an apostle of Jesus Christ, he's comparing how he saw Jesus then and how he sees Jesus now to how we see people. And how maybe we saw them then, in our unconverted state or our lack of a spiritual state and how we should see them now realizing what Jesus has offered them and our role as an ambassador how should we view people so let's talk about Paul's perception of Jesus he's saying here I did know him according to the flesh what does that mean it means I saw him with human eyes but I had no spiritual perspective of who he really was you know that Paul was zealous for the law he was taught by Gamaliel, having a flawless external record of legalistic righteousness. He saw Jesus as a man, claiming to be God. Many people in this world do see Jesus that way, as a man who claimed to be God. You've heard all kinds of descriptions of Jesus. He was a good example. He was a great teacher. He was a prophet. 
Uh, here's what one person wrote regarding Muslims who will readily acknowledge that Jesus was a, was a prophet and a good teacher. But here's what one man wrote about that. He said, to talk about Jesus as a great prophet is really to damn him with faint praise. It cuts the heart out of Christianity. Jesus was not just a good prophet. He was the divine God incarnate sent by the Father to this earth. Anything less is a curse on his character and his being. So here's what Paul's saying. I saw him as a man. In my religious zeal, in my, in my pharisaical legalistic righteousness, I saw him as a man disrupting the flow of our, our, our religious system, claiming to be God, and, and I saw him just as a man trying to, to, to make those claims. But I henceforth, he says in the, in the second part of the verse, yet hence, uh, uh, let me read it, uh, where is it? Though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet now henceforth know we him no more. What he's saying, I don't see him that way now. In my unsaved state, I saw him as a man in my, st in, my, in my life now as an apostle of Jesus Christ and an ambassador for Jesus Christ. I definitely see who he was and what he has done. Let me tell you who Jesus is. Let's drop all the way down in the chapter to the last verse, verse 21. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Notice that phrase right there, who knew no sin. Let me tell you who Jesus is. Are you ready for this? He was the one capable, able, and qualified to become your substitute. He was God in flesh. I personally believe that the greatest miracle in the life of Jesus in the history of the world is the incarnation of Jesus Christ. If, you, if, if we took a survey, what was the greatest miracle? Somebody would say uh, the resurrection of Christ because without the resurrection, we're, we can't be saved. That validated who he was, right? Somebody would say, well, the crucifixion. If he hadn't died on the cross, we couldn't be saved. I agree, those are both profound truths and wonderful truths. But if he had not chosen to come to this earth as the sinless Son of God incarnate, he couldn't have died for us. He had to become who we are. That's the greatest humbling, Philippians 2, 5 and following. We quoted that Sunday morning. But this, is, this uh, first half of verse 21 lays out for us what I call the substitutionary atonement. It's not about what we do. It's about what Christ has done for us. I use the little book uh, written by Carrie Schmidt. I think it's about 50 pages or so. And, and when God lays it on my heart to give somebody one of those, I give them out like a gospel tract sometimes. And I always introduce it by saying, there, there, this book discusses how people try to get to heaven. And really it boils down to just two ways. Some people try to do all they can in order to earn their way. The right way, though, is to trust in what Jesus has done. And that's what the title of this book tells you about. I hope you'll read this little book. But there are so many religions in this world that the entire emphasis of their, their, their religious teaching is what you must do in order to earn eternal life or peace or whatever it is thereafter. All the Old Testament sacrifices were for the purpose of pointing us to Jesus. God prepared the world 
through those sacrifices to understand what the person of Jesus Christ would be able to do for us. So the question for us is, as an ambassador, do we really understand what God has done in His Son for us? Do we really grasp the totality of this substitutionary atonement that Jesus took our place? It's a powerful truth, isn't it? This is the message we shout to this world, isn't it? You can be saved from your sins. Um, every man is a sinner. And listen to the second half of that statement. Every man knows it. You know there's three, there are three things every religion in this world has in common. Every person in this world desires a relationship with their Creator. Now, He's called different by different names. Uh, he's described in different ways. But everybody wants to know where they came from, and they desire that relationship. We're made that way. We're made to worship our Creator. Romans 1, 18, 19, and many other places. Everybody wants a relationship with their Creator. Everybody wants to be absolved of the guilt they feel. Not every religion calls it sin. Some say your good deeds and your bad deeds are going to be weighed against each other someday. But everybody knows, everybody in this world knows, I came from somewhere and I feel guilty because I've done bad things. Am I right about that? You can, it's in Hinduism, it's in Buddhism, it's in Islam, you name it. The third thing everybody wants is a place of freedom from that guilt, a place of peace, a place where you, the whole idea of Buddhism is, is, is journeying through however many lifetimes it takes to get to this place of enlightenment where you're freed from all the human limitations and desires of your physical body. You know that no other religion on earth has this message of substitutionary atonement. It's all about what you do. So the question for me as an ambassador is, does my perception of this wondrous offer of Jesus as the substitute for me, does that so motivate me that I'm willing to give my life to spread that good news, let everybody know you don't have to pay for your own sins. Jesus paid for them on your behalf. The second half of verse 21 is imputed righteousness. The deity of Christ is proven in this verse because it says in the middle, I pointed out a moment ago, for he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. That's echoing his deity and his sinlessness. But the second half of the verse says that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. You've probably heard this before, but if you took a piece of paper and on one side of the paper you put your name and you began to list all your sins. And for some of us it would take a while, wouldn't it? <laughs> But you list all your sins, and then on the other half of the paper, you put Jesus at the top, and you list his sins, and there wouldn't be any. What Jesus did with imputed righteousness is he scratched out your name and put his name over the list of sins, and scratched out his name and put your name over the clean side of the paper. Is that a marvelous, wondrous miracle? He took my place. He not only washed away my sins, he not only offered me freedom and forgiveness from those sins, but He took them on Himself and He placed upon me the righteousness of His own dear Son. Proverbs 29, 18 says, what does Proverbs 29, 18 say? It just left me. <laughs> I have to turn to it now. I know what it says. I know what it says. What do you call that, a senior moment? 
I'm not supposed to have those. Thank you. Where there is no vision, the people perish. But he that keepeth the law, happy is he. You know what the word perish means? It means naked. It's the same word used in Exodus 33, where Moses came down from the mountain with the tablets of the law and found the people worshiping the golden calf, and they were naked, the Bible says in Exodus 33. It has to do with your standing before God. Because without His law, without His word, without the message of this substitutionary atonement and this imputed righteousness, you stand before Jesus Christ unclothed. But having the knowledge of this and placing your trust in this, you stand before God clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. What a wondrous exchange. God made Him to be sin. He did not become a sinner, but He became sin. It was imputed to Him. It was the cup of the Father's wrath. God took all the sins of mankind from the beginning of the world to the end of the world, and He put them on Jesus, and then He took the perfect righteousness of His dear Son, and He wrapped me in it. What a wondrous exchange. We're both forgiven and perfect. We're righteous. On the cross, God treated Jesus as though He committed all the sins of every sinner who ever lived so He could treat every believer as though He had lived Christ's righteous, perfect life. You know what you ought to say to that? Glory to God. No other religion on earth has that story. None. Just ours. Doesn't that make you want to be an ambassador? Doesn't it make you want to tell these people who are deceived and so blinded, uh, in, in whom the God of this world, 2 Corinthians 4, hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel should shine unto them? Perception of Jesus. See, when you realize who Jesus is and what he has done, it ought to make us be a good ambassador for him, shouldn't it? This is such a rich verse, verse 21, and I'm going to leave it now, but... Really, it contains the two major essential truths of the gospel, all in 25 words. It's the heart of the gospel right there. So here's what Paul is saying. Going back up now to verse 16. I used to see Jesus as a man, but now I'm fully aware of what he has offered to us. That perception, change, shift, has also affected the way I look at people. Look at verse 16 again, please. Wherefore, henceforth know we no man after the flesh. Then he said, I knew Christ after the flesh. Are you all with me on this point? Is it clear enough? I hope I'm making it clear. I knew Christ after the flesh. He was just a man. Now, I don't know him that way anymore. I know him as God. And at the beginning of the verse, though, he's paralleling this or making this analogy. I don't know anybody after the flesh now. You know what I see them as? I see them as spiritual beings in need of God. If we saw Jesus through human eyes, how much more prone are we to see people through human eyes without recognizing their value to God? Do you know that to view people correctly is a real challenge? To see them with spiritual eyes is a real challenge. You know what we do when we learn of a people or a person? Let's just take one person. We learn of a person who's without Christ and we look at their life. Uh, we were in a Waffle House the other day. And, and don't condemn me for eating in Waffle Houses. They're pretty good. We were in a Waffle House the other day, and our server walked up to us, a young lady. And I'm just going to be very transparent with you. 
she didn't look much like a Christian. Right? I don't know if she was or not. She claimed that she goes to church. And we shared a testimony with her, and we gave her one of those done books that I was talking about earlier. But you know what it's very easy for us to do is to look at people and think, uh, they don't measure up to what they are. They don't, they're not living like, I, I, I don't know if they can be reached. You know what else we do? Do we like those people? Or let's think about people groups on the other side of the world. The first time I went to Mongolia was my second missions trip. I think I had gone to India first, and then I went to Mongolia. And I had heard all these stories. I was pastoring in Ohio at this time. I would heard all these stories about pastors who went to the mission field, and they came back with a broken, torn-up heart about burden for the world and caring about people. And I came back home, and my wife said, well, how did this trip affect you? Do you did God break your heart for those people? I said, no, I don't even like those people. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if I ever want to go back there again. But you know, what's, you know what's really hard for us? To see people as spiritual beings who desperately need Jesus. A missionary to the Muslim world said, if you had asked me a few years ago, I would have said all Arabs are Muslims, have guns, and want to kill Americans. But I went to my, and he named his mission field, and discovered the Arabs believe that all Americans are Christians, own guns, and would be happy to kill Arabs. You know what his perceptions were? Wrong. And spending time there, he learned there are some really nice people in those Muslim lands. There are some hungry hearts in those Muslim lands. I, ha I have been dwelling on this truth in the last few weeks, and God has really stirred my heart about it. How many of you believe, it, it will agree with me when I say this, God is sovereign? You know what that means? It means he's in charge. And he hasn't lost control. God is sovereign all over this world. He's not just sovereign in those places where the Christianity is honored and the Bible is accepted. He's sovereign in the Muslim lands too. And he's doing a work in those lands to bring people to himself. He can do that work with our assistance and with our prayers and with our participation, or he can do that work without our prayers and our participation. But he's working. He hasn't lost control. Uh, we'll talk about that a little bit more tomorrow night, Lord willing. Um, I clearly remember how I felt when God began to expose the prejudices of my heart. We all have to deal with this. We all deal with prejudice. I was standing in line at Walmart. This was back when I was a pastor. <clears throat> and I think I had gone to India. No, it was right before I went to India. I was standing in line at Walmart, and the, the people in front of me were speaking Spanish. I grew up in, I was born in Alabama. When I was seven years old, we moved to Florida, and I, I, I grew up, the rest of my growing up years were in, in South Florida. So in Alabama, I was born a hillbilly, and in Florida, I became a redneck. <laughs> So I've got the best of both worlds, all right? But we hillbillies and we rednecks, we had some of our prejudices, right? And if you're honest, you're going to admit you have some prejudices too. You were raised with some, maybe different than what I was raised with. But I was standing in line at Walmart, and I heard people speaking in Spanish, and you know what I said to myself? I didn't say it out loud because I'm a nice guy. But you know what I said to myself? Why don't they speak English? This is America. 
not long after that, I took my first missions trip and I went to India. And I stood up when the plane landed in Bombay, India, Mumbai. I stood up in the plane. We're waiting until they open the doors so we can get off the plane. And the people in front of me are speaking Hindi. And you know what I said? This is America. Why don't these people speak English? <laughs> and, it, and it hit me. You're not in America anymore, son. This is India. And God just began to use those things to expose to me the way I thought about people. And, and the prejudices of my heart. That very same trip to India, we were riding down the road. We got a hotel room for the night. After, right after we landed, went to a hotel. The next day, we were heading out to the ministry we were going to visit. And we were driving down a, a six-lane interstate highway. And over on the left side of the road are, are high-rise buildings and office complexes and, and, and obviously a, um, a financial district or something like that, business district. And over on the right side of the road, the rolling hills, as far as you could see back across the landscape, were blue tarp roofs and cardboard shacks and shanties of every imaginable kind built up against each other, and it just went as far as you could see. And you could smell the stench. And I later learned there's about 4 million people living in that poverty-stricken area of Mumbai, and that wasn't the only area in the city like that. And we're riding down that road. I'm looking at the high-rise buildings, and I'm looking over at the the... the, the Terrible, terrible living conditions, garbage and filth everywhere and stench everywhere. And I said to myself, why don't these people clean this area up? It's really unexcusable for people to live like this. And I remember, I can take you back to the place where God smote my heart and said, you think I love you more because you took a shower this morning and cleaned yourself up? And, and you wear a shirt and tie? You think I love you more than I love these people? See, somewhere, somewhere along the way, God's going to have to root out the prejudices of our heart to where we never look at anybody on this earth in any condition, in any color, in any social strata, in any financial status, in any caste or, or ethnic group. We never look at anyone and say, I don't have time for them. Uh, I don't know if they would even get saved if I told them about Jesus. Our perception of people has to change. And, and once we have the proper motivation of the terror of the Lord and the love of Christ constraining us and, and the, the other things we shared, our perception begins to clear up, doesn't it? Once we understand who Jesus is and what he's done, we get spiritual eyes, don't we? And we stop seeing people as groups and we see them as individuals. We see that every person is a person. Everyone is a human being created in the image of God. Someone said to know Jesus is to love people. And I think maybe sometimes the question for us is, do we, do we just look at them or do we see them? Do we see them? When Peter and John walked by the man at the temple gate, the lame man at the temple gate in Acts chapter 3, the Bible says Peter turned and looked at him. Peter didn't just look at him as he went by, he stopped to see him. And you and I need to do that. Stop and see people. And there are other times I could share with you God has rebuked my heart for my prejudices or my lack of spiritual attitude or lack of spiritual perspective on their lives. C.S. Lewis said there is no such thing as a mere mortal. And here's the statement I want you to hear, please. An ambassador, an ambassador, that's what this whole text is about, despises in himself the tendency to hate people he doesn't know. 
and he strives to slay that human tendency. Someone said this, I read this years ago, as long as you, as long as you perceive a people as your enemy, you will never reach them with the gospel. I'm going to tell you a story tomorrow night about a missionary that had to go through that very same process in his heart, and I think it's going to really speak to your heart. Verse 17 helps us break that apart, this prejudice, this, this lack of spiritual perspective. Verse 17 says, Therefore, read the next three words with me out loud, please. Ready? Therefore, if any man be in Christ. Who? Any man. He is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Enemies of God can become friends of God. The fallen can be lifted. The lost can be saved, forgiven, redeemed, restored, reconciled to God. The kingdom of darkness, those in the kingdom of darkness, can be translated into the kingdom of light. Amen? If your perception of people is faulty, you won't make a very good ambassador. That's what verse 16, Paul is trying to teach us. Number three, let's talk about the ambassador's role. And I just have two thoughts here, and we'll bring this to a close in about another 45 minutes. Just kidding. Verse 18, the Bible says, All things, and all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ. So, so who, did, who did this? God did this by Jesus Christ, including our own reconciliation. Do you see that in the first part of verse 18? Look at verse 19. To wit that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them. Understand number two things here under the ambassador's role. It's very clear, very simple. Number one, understand your authority. Understand your authority. Let's go back when we started this last night. We talked about the, in the political realm uh, or the, the governing realm, we talked about what an ambassador is. So let's go back to that human realm again. It, as, as an ambassador of a nation, America has ambassadors all over the world, you have all the resources and riches of your sending nation at your disposal. Are you with me on this so far? You have all the resources and riches of your sending authority. You have access to whatever resources are necessary to carry out the directives that your authority gives you. If your president gives you a directive, it doesn't have to come out of your pocket. You don't have to figure out a way to get it done. Your sending nation will provide for you the resources to carry out the directive of your sending authority. But with all of that, you are not free to act of your own will and your own desires. You represent your sending authority. You cannot set the policy of my nation back home with the nation that, that I'm serving among. You can't set that policy. You can't dictate what's going to happen. You're, you're not the one in charge. You're the ambassador. You don't make the decisions. You carry out the decisions and the will of your sending authority. If an ambassador just decided... An ambassador to Kenya, Africa, just decided of his own accord he's going to set some policy that has to do with Kenya's relationship with the United States. That guy would be yanked out of there just as quick as they could get him out, wouldn't he? All right, let's go back to the spiritual realm now. And as an ambassador, listen, you have all the riches of God in Christ Jesus. 
you have all the resources to affect your nation where you serve, your area where you serve, you have all the resources to change the condition of the relationship between your sending authority and the people that you're serving among. You have a personal relationship to the one who makes all things new. This is the spiritual realm. You have a personal relationship with the one who makes all things new. And if any of these people will come into Christ, they can become a brand new creature. You have, all the access, you have access to all the resources of heaven and the word of God and the spirit of God. But you have an authority to recognize. Go to verse 18 again with me, please, and look at the first phrase. And all things are of God. Who's the authority here? God. I'm not the authority. I don't get to change the message. I don't get to change the methodology. I don't get to give them some other substitute for Jesus. Because my authority has declared what the message is. And my authority has reconciled me through Jesus Christ. And he wants to reconcile the world through Jesus Christ. Verse 19, that's the message I am to bear. God's the author of our salvation, isn't he? He saved us and he's the one who will save them. He's the source of all things. I love verse 18. All things are of God. You know, when a man's been in ministry for a while, he kind of gets the idea that I've learned a lot, I've grown a lot, I know a lot, and I can help these people. Now, I have nothing to offer anybody outside the Spirit of God through the Word of God to affect and change your life. I have access to all the resources. Listen, I have no authority except that which is given me of God, because all things are of God. See, Paul knew something very special here. He knew that he would not be saved if he had not been apprehended of the Lord Jesus. He said that in Philippians 3.12. Not as though I had already attained, either already perfect, but I follow after, if that I may apprehend that for which I am also apprehended of Jesus Christ. Paul knew his salvation was because Jesus arrested him on the Damascus Road. It wasn't his own work or merit. God came looking for Paul. And Paul knew the work he was called to do, listen to this, was a gift of the Lord Jesus. What does the rest of verse 18 say? He has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. You know what given to us means? It's a gift. You're an ambassador and I have gifted you with this wonderful message of the substitutionary atonement and the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. Paul talked about that all through his writings. According to the glorious gospel of the blessed God which was committed to my trust, we can't decide to change the way it works. We, can't have, we don't have the freedom to change the message, to add to it or take away from it. It's his message. It's his gospel. So we, re, we remember that God is our authority, but there's a second aspect under this point about understanding your authority, and this is the most comforting one to me. We have to rest in the fact that it is his work, not ours. Uh, I was talking to somebody uh, not too long ago, and we're, we're, we're talking about how, how you long to see more people come to Christ, and you long to see the church grow, and you long to see the fruit of your labors. You know what we have to do? We have to rest in the fact that this is God's work. I don't have to make it happen. I just have to be faithful to be an ambassador. I have to be faithful to tell the good news. 
what makes, what makes missionaries move 10,000 miles from home? It is the assurance that God is at work in this world. You know why this brother's going to the Solomon Islands? Because God is at work over there. And, and he needs this man's help and assistance to be an ambassador of the gospel of Jesus Christ on the Solomon Islands, Islands because there are people over there, Brother Colton, who will be saved when you get there and share the good news of Jesus with them. Every missionary can go with the assurance that God is sovereign and he's at work everywhere. He's not ceded control to any other authority. We view certain parts of the world with doubt and fear, and we ask, can God work there? Can those people be saved? Is there any hope for them? Can that darkness ever be penetrated? But we know it can because God promised that some from every kindred, tribe, and tongue would come to know Him. 1 Corinthians 15, 58 says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. This ambassadorship that we're part of, it's not going to be in vain. Whether we see great results or not, we ought to know God is at work. So under this main point here of, under, of, uh, of the ambassador's role, number one, understand your authority. Number two, understand your ministry. Understand your ministry. Look at verse 18 again. The second half says, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. I'm sorry, verse 18. Hath given unto us, to us the ministry of reconciliation. In the end of verse 19, hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. According to Paul, God has given us this work to do. So it's not only a divine work, but it is a human participation, cooperation. God chooses to use a human messenger. I think verse 20 is the most powerful verse in this text. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. Now, I'm going to stop right there for a minute and just ask, do you understand the role of an ambassador now? I sure hope we've seen enough from this chapter to, to motivate, motivate us to be a good ambassador, to give us confidence in the message we carry, to give us confidence in the God who gave us the message. I hope we've seen enough to know that I have a role in this mission of God. We talked about Sunday morning. We were sent by Jesus Christ into this world. And this is a picture. This is one picture in the Bible of what we're sent to be and what we're sent to do to be an ambassador sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. But let's look at the rest of verse 20. Now then, now then we are ambassadors for Christ. This is a most powerful phrase. As though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. Now you, you look at that at first glance and you might think that Paul is praying for these people to be saved, but he's not writing to lost people. He's, he said, I pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. He's not praying that these people will come and be reconciled to God. He's defining what an ambassador is. Look at it again. As though God did beseech you by us. This is not just a perfunctory performance, but it is a passionate plea. It is a persuading of men as the mouthpiece of God himself. Oh boy, if this doesn't sober you up, I don't know what would. Paul said, as I serve as an ambassador, 
with this good news of the substitutionary atonement and the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ offered to any man who would accept the news and the good news, the gospel. It's as though God is speaking to you by me. That's how serious my role is. That's how serious my participation in the mission of God is. It is though, as though God were making his own direct appeal to this world through my lips. Now, we're not little gods. We're representatives of a great God. This is divinely inspired scripture. And God gave Paul this ambassador analogy to help us understand who we are. We are the voice of God in this world. Whether you're with friends or co-workers or neighbors, what's your role? God put you in that situation so you can be a spokesman for Him. You can share His message, not your message, His message. So you may not feel like an ambassador, but you are one. Whether you're a good ambassador or not really is up to you from this point forward, isn't it? Because verse 18 says He's given us this ministry. And verse 19 says He's committed us this word, this message. And verse 20, now then, we are ambassadors. Can I give you three concluding thoughts very quickly? First of all, we need to get the message right. We need to get the message right. We're not at liberty to change it. You can't nice it up. You can't water it down. You can't take away some of the strength of it so you don't offend people with their sin. This is His divine message, not yours. We persuade, we lay out the facts, we answer objections, we give the truth because we are convinced of its truth. Secondly, we cannot leave the message undelivered. We're ambassadors of a sovereign king with the full authority of God behind us and we cannot be silent, secret Christians. And third, not all ambassadors live at home. By nature, this is what an ambassador is, right? So there's two, there's two ways to look at this. Now, don't get nervous. I'm not telling everybody in this room you have to go to a foreign mission field. I'm telling everybody in this room that this world is not your home. You're representative of another world. But some of us ambassadors need to go where the message has not been delivered yet. Right? That's why we send missionaries, isn't it? So do you love the gospel? I hope, I hope that this, this motivation of an ambassador has brought fear and conviction and love and assurance to your heart. I hope you can see people through God's eyes. And I hope you can see God at work in this world. And I hope we can see our role. And I hope we can be confident in God's work through Jesus Christ. And this message is effective. It works. I hope you love this enough to give your life to it and be willing to die for it. And I hope you'll be bold enough to persuade others to accept this wonderful message. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the power of this chapter. What a rich, rich portion of God's Word. And I pray that perhaps as we later tonight or sometime tomorrow, maybe we could review this chapter again. 
and let you speak to us even more deeply. Lord, I doubt that justice has been done to this passage, but I pray that you, Holy Spirit, will take it and just drive it so deep into our hearts that the desire to be an ambassador and a faithful ambassador for you just, just dominates our lives. On mission with you. Please use these thoughts. In Jesus' name I pray.